There we are. Another one. How is this for volume? Being able to hear? Okay, good. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samha sambhutasa Buddhang damang sanghang namasami Wonderful to be back in Santa Cruz. Grateful for the invitation to come and join your Sangha at your new center. The essence of insight meditation comes down to deeply understanding these basic characteristics of all phenomena. whether things are looked at from the viewpoint of their level of ability to satisfy or lack of ability to satisfy or looked at from the from the perspective of their changing nature the permanent side of conditioned phenomena or they're looked at from the viewpoint of non-identification non-self So this evening I'd like to focus a bit more on this aspect of non-self, which is the English translation that we normally use for the Pali word anatta. So the crux of the Buddhist teachings, the the essence which most makes the Buddhist teaching unique is taking this principle of investigation and understanding of anatta or non-self to the deepest level possible. In many other traditions, they, uh, at the time of the Buddha and since, they can see that you know certain things are, are not who we are, not our true self. But in the time of the Buddha, uh, there were many very advanced sadhus and ascetics of various traditions and they could see well it may not this is not a true self and this is not a true self but somehow behind it all or encompassing it or within it there is our true self and this is what we seek on a spiritual path and then people would have various experiences and perceptions and then tend to call that their experience of the true self and then uh, then along came the Buddha and said, well, even if you identify with that, it's going to lead to suffering. So it's helpful to look at what are the things that we identify with in our own life. I mean, there are, there are times in life when we may consider it not perfect according to how we would like life or according to how we assumed things would be. So whether it's more overt sense of experience of hmm, I'm upset and frustrated or the most subtle sense of this is 
absolutely blissful, but then it's wearing off. <laughs> Either way, if there's any sense of, of dukkha that comes from that, it will it will be traced back to identification in some form, identify, identifying with with some aspect of this physical or mental experience that we consider me, mine, and myself. So we can take a, a look at it somewhat systematically. You know, what is it that we identify with our, as me, as myself? Now, funny enough, the, the most... Uh, uh, the part that is the maybe the, the least of who we think we really are is maybe the part that we uh, we often think about a lot is is the body, right? So this collection of molecules, elements, built up into various shapes and forms, it is it is very deeply ingrained to identify with this human form as this is me and this is mine. Now, from the viewpoint of the Dhamma, one body is absolutely as good as another body. It doesn't really matter. But then you get into whole projections of beauty or lack of beauty and identification with to what degree we fulfill that, and, and then life starts to become more complicated. From a Dhamma perspective, one body, you know, if you have a body with, with three arms instead of two arms, it's just as good. You know, from the viewpoint of insight, it's just as good. Or if you have a body from, you know, in terms of insight, with, uh, that's not complete or is, is a bit... Uh, larger or smaller or taller, or it doesn't really matter, right? But then, of course, we have these deeply conditioned, either evolutionary or cultural perceptions that are built in to perceive ourselves and others with a sense of beauty or lack of beauty and all that goes with it. Well, whether we're young or old, healthy, sick, <clears throat> from the viewpoint of identification, it's absolutely the, the same. To what degree are we identifying with our body? Often it's the, it's the uh, times when maybe the body is not feeling very healthy that we start to notice it. And we realize, oh yeah, well this is the downside of identifying with the body, right? Generally, when we're young and healthy and better looking, etc., when everything's going well with the body, then, then we, we may not notice the identification. There's strong identification, but it's when uh, maybe we start to get older, a few more aches and pains, we start to notice the body more, uh, so you know, the relationship with others starts to change, depending on age. and Then a lot of the identifications start to come to the surface and we realize, oh, this is the, this is the drawback or this is the danger that comes from identification. We start to suffer. And if people have very strong identification with the body, then when it doesn't go the way we wish, then the corresponding level of suffering is greater. Huh? If we have weaker identification with the body, 
then when we get older and start getting more pains and we're not as we don't have the same energy or we don't have the same vigor the same uh radiance and beauty physical standards of beauty according to mainstream society then not such a big deal if we don't have a big identification with the body it's like well it's just a natural process when we're younger the body looks one way we start to get older the body starts to look another way so fine that in itself is not a problem but it can reveal to what degree we are associated with this physical form i mean if we really look at it it's the the uh, the elements and and uh, uh, all the the basic ingredients of this body are not that different than the trees you know meditating out in the forest is surrounded by trees and rocks and essentially we're the same thing and yet why is it that out of all of the nature surrounding us we we uh, kind of uh, appropriate this bit of molecules and elements and we say well, this is mine this is mine and this is me and you can't the identification goes very strong so it's not simply a matter of analyzing intellectually that can help us give a start but it doesn't really sink in and say yes i understand that that we are merely a collection of smaller parts but then when we stub our toe it's still like ow oh, that's my pain or or we look in the mirror you know, look in the mirror. To what degree do we say, Oh, you're looking great today. <laughs> we look in the mirror and say, Oh, you're looking horrible today. Well, essentially, you know, that, that reveals, every time you look in the mirror, what comes up. So identification with the body is, is, is one aspect of what we consider to be ourselves and if the motivation behind our life is to understand ourselves better then okay we've got the body and we've got a mind it's easy all you have to do is look at those two so we start with the body generally because it's it's there all the time and it it's very good to pay attention to the body for a number of reasons it's very grounding for uh, to anchor our mindfulness moment by moment throughout the day and daily life activities. No matter what you're doing, you know, pay te- paying attention to the movement of the of the limbs, you know, the balance of the bo- of our bodies, uh, the sensations throughout the bodies. Right? So this helps us be create a sense of awareness and then also very quickly when we notice we're identifying with things it brings that to our the forefront of our awareness much more quickly but of the things that we tend to identify with <clears throat> the mind is much more multifaceted and 
the classification that the Buddha most often used was what we call the five khandas or five aggregates and the first being the body but then the and then uh, the remaining four are different aspects of the mind different ways that the mind uh, works or perceives now this classification was somewhat arbitrary if you, know, you could you could call them you could split things up in a bit more uh, a throwaway a dozen aggregates but essentially it there's a classification that kind of makes uh, a sense, and it was it served as a framework for systematically looking at the mental aspect of what we identify with as ourselves. So the first of this is the first aspect of the mind is Vedana. We don't really have a word in English that translates well. So we typically will translate it as feeling, but it's very inaccurate. So sometimes it's actually more beneficial or uh, less confusing to use the Pali term. If I say the word feeling, it may uh, uh, connote emotion, more emotional sense. But Vedana refers to with all of our sense contact of an immediate reaction of pleasure or displeasure or sometimes so subtle that we consider it neutral. So in this sense, Vedana is not merely concerned with the body. Sometimes Vedana is misunderstood or maybe misunderstood translated sometimes merely as physical sensations or understood merely as physical sensations. So physical sensations are one thing, the Pali word is potapa, but physical sensations are one thing, but then the very quick mental reaction, pleasant or unpleasant, based on physical sensation, is what we call comfort or discomfort. Comfort, discomfort it becomes more intense than, than it's, its pleasure or pain, physical pleasure or pain. So this is one aspect of, of Vedana, this pleasant, this movement of the mind that, that sees something or interprets something as pleasurable or unpleasurable. But it's not just happening in the body, it's happening with, with the rest of the senses, this, so, for example, if we see something and we consider it beautiful, then that is giving rise to pleasant fate enough. If we see something and it, it, we consider it ugly or un, you know, not what we want to see, then it gives rise to a, an unpleasant Vedana or reaction. Now, we're seeing if most of the time the actual act of seeing the light, the shape, the form, the color isn't the thing that stimulates a Vedana. Unless someone is actually shining a light in your eye, you know, at night, if they shine a flashlight in your eye, then there's a very quick reaction of... You know, or uh, occasionally there are, are sights that bring up uh, like a visceral reaction. But for the most part, it's just shape and color, form that then quickly gets interpreted as a perception based on 
memories from previous experience. So, you know, we, we see a person, and uh, whether we've seen that person before or not, very quickly a perception arises around a person or a place or a building. And, and uh, then based on that perception, there'll be a pleasant or unpleasant reaction. Right. Same with hearing. Uh, same with tasting. Right. So this is a, a, a full-time practice just in and of itself. You could spend your entire Vipassana practice just paying attention to the continuity of the mind going pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, and re- realizing to what degree we define our lives and and orient our lives and motivate ourselves through seeking the pleasant and trying to avoid the unpleasant. Right. You just like visually, you could span, uh, uh, scan a street full of people or a room full of people, and just watch watch the reaction without trying to interfere, and just noticing the you know. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, 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 pleasant. pleasant. You know, based on face, based on shape, based on clothes. Who knows? Based on just gut feeling, right? But whatever it is, it's like mind's constantly doing that. Whether Whether we're consciously aware of it or not, it is doing that. And then we have a strong inclination to go towards that which gives us a pleasant reaction. So, in a sense, we're just we're like slaves of of pleasant Vedana. Pali word for pleasant Vedana is sukha, sukha Vedana. Pali word for unpleasant Vedana is dukkha, dukkha Vedana. Yeah, I, I go to visit my father when I come to the United States. I go to visit my father, and um, he will talk about going out to dinner and the refined tastes of a particular course of a meal and the refinements of the wine and the subtleties of the flavors and and you know, I'm politely listening but I keep, keep thinking well you know it's just Vedana <laughs> you know you spend you, know, you can five dollars you can spend five dollars on a meal and you get Vedana you can spend three hundred dollars <laughs> On a meal, and you still get Vedana, right? So I don't say that to my father, Good idea. because he hasn't asked for a teaching. But but you just just noticing in myself, but then you know in in other people, we can often. Often, maybe sometimes we see it in other people first before we see it in ourselves. But we can learn both from ourselves, observing ourselves and observing other people, that uh, to what degree we uh, are motivated, you know, to what degree we... we... I mean, being in a monk, I'm in a good position with food, for example. And people say, well, what do you want to eat? So, well, whatever's offered... And whether it's uh, delicious or not delicious, or whether I, or you know, that's just my Vedana, anyways. Intrinsically, it's neither delicious nor, or not. It's just their sensations, 
But whether I consider it delicious or not delicious, or whether it's what I want or or don't want, or whether I consider it healthy or not healthy, you know, we just take whatever is offered. And so, in a sense, it kind of frees up this uh, uh, this you know. I don't have to be motivated to always try to seek that which is delicious. Because that in itself is a burden. Or trying to always uh, seek that which is beautiful. I mean, it becomes like a full-time job in life to try to maintain sukha or pleasurable vedana all the time. You know, so we're always seeing beautiful things. We're always uh, hearing nice sounds and never hearing criticism. <laughs> uh, we're always, you know, have delicious food. We never have any bad smells. <laughs> and uh, and comfort. How much of our life revolves around comfort? Yeah. And simplifying life. Uh, this is one of the things about. Uh, being a monk, especially being a monk in Thailand, is that the level of simplification brings you in contact with um, what happens when you don't have this huge system of of modern life that is revolving around human comfort. Right? I mean, it's it's wonderful and it's pleasant to have systems that keep things the right temperature and and the right humidity and and whatnot. And when you're alone in the forest or in a hut in Thailand or simply simply simplifying our lives, right? It's not like we we go to be an ascetic to try to create suffering in our lives, but just the process of simplification brings us more in touch with the frailties of the human body and how easy it is to feel discomfort. So we always have a lot to practice with. You know, we can always pay attention. You know, this is <clears throat> this is you know in Thailand you're just like dripping with sweat from about eight o'clock in the morning after onwards until the evening and and feeling well this is unpleasant this is unpleasant this feels too hot but you know you just get used to to paying attention and accepting well this is vedana and it's simply vedana and i can make a big issue about it and suffer <laughs> or or i just notice it as vedana well this is vedana sometimes it's pleasant sometimes it's unpleasant um the unpleasant tends to stand out more and so we notice it we when it's pleasant uh, it can lull us into feeling oh i feel very peaceful right because nothing's being challenged it's like everything's pleasant we're surrounded by beauty and good food and and the right temperature and comfort and comfortable beds and everything's comfortable everything's relatively pleasant and then that can hide the the degree that we might identify with that pleasantness it's only when it's taken away then we we say oh now i'm suffering (laughs) and that's the flip side So this is one aspect of the mind. And now Vedana is not simply uh, having to do with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but also everything that arises in the mind. Every thought, every perception, every mood is going to have its own 
pleasant or unpleasant reaction. So this is happening at light speed. Now it is possible for mindfulness to become so quick that we can keep pace with it all. It's like uh, it's like there's a still point of centered awareness and balance and we surround ourselves with a sphere of awareness and just noticing noticing this mental, physical Vedana happening all around us. It is possible to keep pace with that. But there's a lot going on, even in the simplest situations. Even sitting still with our eyes closed was a relatively simple activity. Uh, you may notice there's still a lot going on. So Vedana is, is considered one of the, the first of the mental contests. And, and, uh, and then we get into the realm of memory and perception. A lot of identification there. I mean, you think of, like, I remember the first meditation retreat I ever did. I was hardly in the present moment because all these memories were flooding forth from before I thought I had memories, you know, my entire child and, and everything, uh, memories flooding forth. And there was a very strong identification with all that. Me and my childhood or me and my, my uh, teenage years and me and my college years and, you know, very strong identification with all of that. Um, now, if the memories, if it's a pleasant memory, you know, if it's a memory that we like, then uh, it feels good. But if it's a memory that's, that's painful, uh, then it hurts. But either way, there's identification with it. And so uh, the identification, one way or another, will be the crux of the problem. So this, you know, this comes into, for example, analysis, or for, uh, to some degree, you know, if we're analyzing where our attachments came from, or our, our personality quirks, or then we can, you know, we can identify with or analyze memories and look at those systematically. But from the viewpoint of of insight, even if a memory is painful, it's still valid. You know, memory comes up, it's painful, and, okay, well, there's Dukkha Vedana based on a memory. Okay, that's all it is. And then it may come up again and again for a while, but if we don't feed it, if we don't keep identifying with it as me and my story and my history, then it just tends to, to fade away, and then the pain associated with that tends to fade away. And then we get into perceptions. Now, essentially, we create our reality by what, how we perceive and project our perceptions. Right? Even though our reality feels so three-dimensional, we're all in a slightly different reality. Even though we're sitting next to each other, what I perceive... It's going to be very different than what Jill perceives, very different than what Bruce perceives. Now, of course, they, they're going to overlap to some degree. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be able to communicate. But based on our own personal conditioning, or maybe just based on the mood that we have at this moment, or based on some 
thought that maybe um, uh, putting a different spin on what we're experiencing right now, then our perceptions will be different. And then our memories, based on this perception, will also be different. So, um, literally, we are, are living in different realities. And literally, people will have different memories of the exact same incident based on that. So if we strongly identify with our perceptions, then we, we assume that what we perceive is real because we see it. We see it and we're experiencing it, so it's real. And then someone else says uh, they have a different perception. This, usually people don't phrase it like that. They just say, no, that's, that's not it. That's wrong. This is how it is. <laughs> right? No, you're wrong because... You know, if I if someone else perceives something differently than I perceive it, they must be wrong because I wouldn't intentionally, you know, see something, perceive it, and then perceive it in a wrong way. So if they're perceiving something differently, they must be wrong. Thus, the crux of the difficulty of humans to get along. <laughs> so, you know, every every international down to domestic disagreement is based on this difference in perceptions, identification with perceptions. If everyone just practice insight deeply enough to realize that, oh, this is simply a per- perception that I am projecting, and my perceptions are valid as such, and this person's perceptions are equally valid, even if they are different than mine. Not one perception is not necessarily better than the other, but they're equally valid as a perception. Then, uh, you know, someone's I, you know, I say, oh, well, this is a cup. It's a vessel that holds water. And someone else looks at it and says, no, don't be an idiot, John. That's a door. <laughs> this is a door. And it's like, oh, are we from the same? Are we using language in the same way? I say, yeah, doors are used for going inside buildings. Yeah, right. Okay, and you're holding a door in your hand. All right, well, initially I might think I'm right and he's wrong. But I think, well, if he, if he really perceives it as that I'm holding a door in my hand, um, that's valid. It's va- I can't say his perception is wrong. Now, on other levels, we can have a discussion of whether so we, need to, we need to come to an agreement on on uh, how we use language. But beyond, on simply on the level of insight, our perception is equally valid. So that has the practical benefit of making it a lot easier to get along with, with people. You know, you come together and say, well, you know, this happened and it was like this and you said this and, and this is what happened. And... and and it seems so real. And then the other person may say, oh, oh, I didn't realize that you perceived it that way. I perceive it like this, but your perception, I, I respect your perception equally to my own perception, even though I may not fully understand it or agree with it, but I understand, okay, your perception is just as valid as mine, and therefore no one's wrong on that level. Both people, both people can, are right in the sense that, oh, well, this is how I perceive the situation. 
So that adds a, a great level of flexibility rather than thinking, if I perceive it, therefore that is reality. Right? It's a very hard and fixed way of looking at things, and when we identify with that, that creates a whole system of views and opinions that we then identify with all those views and opinions. And um, you see the result in the modern world. <laughs> it's somewhat chaotic. So that, that aspect of the mind which perceives things and then those perceptions form memories, <clears throat> that's called sanya. So we have <clears throat> the body, Pali is called kaya, vedana, you know, the movement of the mind, pleasant and unpleasant. <clears throat> Memory and perception is sanya. Then you get into the area of intentional thought formations which uh, are the often the the essence of the the essence of the karma that we make in life will come from intentions or in Pali it's almost it's, it's like the energy that goes the energy of the mind before it even forms a thought which then leads into a motivation to speak or to act. And then from that is we, we have a ripple effect into the world, which we call karma, our reaction to the present moment, creates a certain uh, reaction and uh, habit force that will literally create our future. So many, most of the more complicated aspects of the mind, the, the, the thinking, um, a, memory, a memory might arise, but then all of the thinking around it, you know, or a future, a thought of the future might arise, but then all of the planning and complications around it you know, fall more into this aspect of, of how the Buddha was looking at the mind. And this is what we call Sankara. So the essence of karma in the way that the Buddha looks at this law is intention or I think more accurately motivation. Motivation is probably a good translation. What is it that's motivating us? Motivating us to act, to see, to do, to speak. And this, again, is a full-time practice, just watching everything that we say, everything that we do. Where is this coming from? What's more, is it coming from a sense of caring, or is it coming from a sense of anger and frustration? Right? Now, the actual words may be the same. The actual the physical action might be the same, but what is the intention behind it? Because that will be the, the crux of... of of the effect that it will have out there and then on us and literally creating our future 
and it has a, a big effect on our own happiness both now and in the future. So just the law of karma in a nutshell because we're focusing on, on this on this aspect of motivation and intention. If you think of the, the history of the universe and all of the causes and conditions leading up to this moment right now and then in the Buddha's understanding of, of karma, how we react to this moment then puts in motion a, a mental momentum. A habit. It will. It will either continue a habit or start a new habit. Um, it will. It's like a ripple that goes out. And generally, we tend to get back what we put out. Huh? But not. There's no clear one-to-one relationship. It's not like well, if I <clears throat> if I do this today, then tomorrow the same thing will happen to me. If I give if I give this much, then tomorrow someone will give me back this much. It's not like. It's not so mechanical. But uh, there are certain types of motivations which will lead to our own happiness and certain types of motivations that will lead to our own detriment uh, or detriment of other people, and that's not going to lead to happiness. So this is the essence of, of the Buddhist aspect of it. What is leading to um, a true, lasting, satisfying happiness? And as we go step by step... Yeah, uh, sometimes it's surprising to find what really leads to our happiness. We, we may think at, at one stage in our life, this is what we need to do to be happy. And then after a while, it's like, well, is that really working? And notice, well, it's actually, it's actually when I do this little thing or when I had this interaction with a stranger or, or, or when I spend time you know, time with my family or whatever, some little, or maybe or maybe it's the opposite, maybe it's when we don't spend time with our family. <clears throat> it, it, you know, we, we start to discover, oh, it's actually when I do these little things that I feel happiest. All right. Uh, I, you know, the whole idea of, it, um, it's better to give than to receive. It's not because of some moral law, but it is. It, it leads to more joy. I mean, it's great to receive. It's great to be on the receiving end of gifts. But just notice when we have a moment of open-hearted giving, it's like, oh, I felt great. What a relief. It's like, it's like we're temporarily relieved from this preoccupation with ourselves. And even momentarily thinking about the well-being of someone else, it... It actually feels wonderful. And we think, oh, well, maybe if I did that more often, I would be more happy. Or maybe if I, if I considered the well-being of others more than only considering the well-being of myself, right, then, then uh, that might change you know, my life. It doesn't mean to leave yourself out, because sometimes people go to the other extreme especially Buddhists, they can be so caring and compassionate to everybody around them, but then they, they realize they're neglecting being kind and compassionate to themselves. So that is also very important. The 
so all of the thought formations that we have and uh, and even the the motivations that we have are very prone to being identified with now even if we have the best motivations motivations to be kind and generous and patient and forgiving if we strongly identify with those motivations that will also lead to problems right? I think I am the most kind I'm so kind and forgiving and patient and then someone else says you know you're not that kind so what what are you talking about <laughs> What are you talking about? (laughs) Don't tell me that. I am the most compassionate. I am the most patient. So even identification with good things, then uh, uh, some warning bells might go off. You have to even beware of identification with with positive positive, uh, intentions and motivations and actions and speech. We call wholesome karma. Now, one one aspect of attention, which which is um, modern science gives a new twist to, is is this identification with free will and making choices right now the essence of karma is that it's the buddha said it's not a fatalistic way of looking at life at all it's very dynamic you know we have the free choice the free will to respond how we wish to this present moment i mean sometimes sometimes uh moods and emotions just sweep us away and it feels like we don't have an actual choice right but but assuming our mindfulness is very strong and this moment arises and there's no strong stimulus, then we have the free choice in how we react. We can choose to to say something or not to say something, to do something or not to do something. And this identification with having a sense of free will or being independent, uh, the ability to be uh, spontaneous, be uh, kind of self-reliant, right? These, I mean, every human being identifies with this very strongly, particularly Americans. <laughs> this this idea of independence and, and me and my free choice and my free will, you know, uh, independence is, is particularly strong as a cultural, you know, a cultural uh, thread or feeling that runs through uh, our society due to the way, due to the people who came here. Now, interestingly enough, with the modern interaction between science and, and meditation and um, neurobiology, you know, investigations into that and, and experiments that they've done with fMRI imaging, they've tried to create uh, experiments which will, uh, as as much as possible, create an experiment which would measure people's choice, free will choice. 
based on an extremely simple choice of, of an image will arise and then they make a choice whether to press a button on the right side or the left side. And uh, so image will and they were told as soon as you've made a decision, press a button. So it could be a pause, and as soon as you make a decision, press the button as quickly as you can. And meantime, they're collecting all this uh, neurological data, and then once that was processed, they would compare it with the person's choices. And what they found was that they could almost entirely predict what the person's choices were going to be before they made a conscious decision. And I, when I first heard about that, I thought that, well, maybe it's, uh, it's simply like a difference in nanoseconds. It's just like, but no, it's, it's more like uh, it can be half second, a few seconds, as much as 10 seconds, where they can, they can measure what's going on in the brain prior to us being conscious of it, where the decision has been made, and then, and then a conscious decision, and then, then there is the conscious decision, conscious to us, and then immediate action that follows. So this really then throws a new spin on things. Well, does that mean we don't have free will? This thing which is in a sense, the essence of the law of karma, or something that we identify with so much, and so much of our society, legal system, you know, system of uh, uh, legal, a sense of justice, so much is based on the idea that a person would have free will, and that's why they act. Right. I mean, if one example, if you're at, if you're down at the beach. And uh, you go into the water and you get stung by a jellyfish and you come out of the water with burns on your chest from the jellyfish. That's a very, un there's a lot of Duke of Vedana there. But you don't normally think of calling the police wanting to jail the jellyfish or calling your lawyer to sue the jellyfish for damages. But if you're laying on the same beach and, and a person walked by and poured a weak solution of acid on you intentionally, then you would. You wouldn't just say, oh, oh, that really hurt, but, you know, it's just nature. <laughs> you know, so, no, what's the difference? Well, we assume that the person has free will, whereas the jellyfish, um, we don't associate or project free will on the jellyfish to such a great degree. So it was just instinct, what we call instinct. So, uh, if, a, if a person really doesn't have free will in that sense that we assume it does, then how can you uh, hold anybody accountable for what they're doing? So, even identifying with free will can... Uh, you know, that... we. With anatta practice, with trying to find out where we identify 
with things, how we create the sense of self. It's like you keep having to look at the at other pockets. There's always these hidden places where we create our sense of self. And one of the things that is really threatening to that, that deeply held attachment, is the idea of free will. Because we, you know, if I'm not making this choice, who is? Can there, there are choices being made, but no one making those choices? How does, how does that work? So then you re- we really start to confront who we think we are. And it's designed to be somewhat challenging. It wouldn't be a good Dhamma talk if there wasn't something challenging. (laughs) And it's not meant to be an intellectual exercise. And some of these things, whether we agree with them or not, is is not the point. The point is is to, with whatever degree of clarity that we have, Look at our life. Look at our motivations. Look at how we how we perceive and and experience pleasure and displeasure, and how we you know those choices that we consciously make to do wholesome things or unwholesome things. But then also looking well, who is who or what is making those choices? Where is that coming from? Am I identifying with that? If we're going to identify with anything, we might as well identify with the neural processes that are happening before we have make a conscious decision, because that's where the sense of free will may be. But you can't be conscious of something that is pre-conscious. So that leads us to the, the next and final of the five khandhas, five khandhas, which is consciousness. So being aware of seeing, aware of hearing, huh? aware of, of smelling, tasting, touching, and cognizant of the mind. These are, are aspects of being conscious, being awake. So it's very much tied in with paying attention to the senses. And it's very subtle, particularly consciousness associated with the mind. Right? Often this may be one of the last holdouts of, of identification. Yeah. So many of the other things we can see that it's not, yeah. Like if you're looking for the true self, even if you're looking for a true self, okay, it's not my body, it's not, my, it's not my, my, the moods and emotions that come and go, it's, it's not uh, the pleasant and unpleasant experiences I've ha- I have. They, uh, they're changing all the time. But behind that, we may identify with that which is watching, that which is being aware. As if that's a constant thing. Constant thing. I'm aware of this. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of this. And how that creates a sense of self. Every time we see something, even if we don't consciously form the thought, there is the assumption, I am seeing. We hear sounds. I'm hearing. I'm listening. We're lost in our thoughts, so I'm daydreaming. Now, it's this I or this assumption of someone who's doing and experiencing the conscious awareness. 
has a very subtle sense of self, but we're constantly reinforcing that. Every time we hear, every time we sense, every time we feel comfort now. I feel comfortable. I feel uncomfortable. Now with any teaching, you can't simply take it on its own. It's tied in with all of the other teachings, right? And the degree, to the degree that our mind becomes very calm and clear and settled, usually due to meditation, sometimes due to external conditions, then that will be the degree to which we're able to see more deeply. So we may try to investigate some of this non-self stuff, but then we can't hold our attention on it. We kind of get scattered. Even if we're trying to pay attention, then our mind drifts away. So that's why we spend so much time and effort and encourage people to, to develop this continuity of mindfulness clear awareness in every action throughout the day because then it, it anchors our awareness in the present and with a, a continuity of clear awareness the natural result is that we start to become more calm uh, we're able to, to focus you know, if we wish to focus on a particular aspect of the Dhamma as a theme of contemplation we can hold our attention there consistently you know, and, you know, and really look at something deeply Otherwise, we, we just tend to scratch the surface. So, contemplation then will always lead you know, back into the mind needs to be, be developed more the samatha or samadhi side as well. Where we, may spend, we may actually spend the majority of our time meditating, developing this side of, of quietude but then that prepares us for clarity and looking. And, and then you have to have both. You have to have that sense of, of deep quietude or a, an aspiration, a gradual movement towards quietude, but then also have the integrity to really want to understand who it is that we think we are. Right? And if we really want to be kind to ourselves, if we really want to be happy, then this is, this is the crux of it. This is, this is where it's going to have a transformative effect on our life. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. If anybody has any questions, I'm very happy to answer any question. Yeah, I'm uh, wondering if you can explain the difference between Sukha Vedana and Somanasa, or Dukkha Vedana and Dhammanasa. What would the difference be, or how do they relate? 
I think in the same way that in English we have a, a different terms which are near synonyms but may have different connotations or used in different contexts, right? then the same is true in Pali. Right? Somanasa, Domanasa usually referring to um, uh, you know, grief and despair, that sense uh, well, at least that's how we define. That's how we translate it into English. Dukkha Vedana and Sukha Vedana is a bit uh, more. It's not as specific. It's more. It refers to encompassing all of our sensory activities, both physical and mental. So could you say then, uh, maybe sometimes that Dukkha Vedana could lead to. Domanasa, like maybe it's more of a, a state. And that's how I'm interpreting it right now. Sukha Vedana could lead to Domanasa? Or, or Dukha Vedana. <laughs> Dukha Vedana could lead to Domanasa. It's like we're speaking a foreign language. <laughs> <laughs> even, even pleasant reactions, pleasant sensations, can lead to suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In one way or another. At, at the very least, they will wear off. And then that can lead to a sense of, of loss. Right? Or it can just lead to a sense of boredom, which is um, it's a subtle form of, of negativity. Right? It's like, oh, this is great, but, you know, I've been, that is so yesterday. <laughs> Um, so just noticing how, how uh, even those, how quickly these things change, how unreliable huh, even pleasant Vedana is huh, in terms of long-term satisfaction. Then we start to get start to get a handle on right why why put so much energy just to try to get pleasant Vedana when it's the level of satisfaction is is not that great and tends to disappear quickly It's an ongoing topic. <laughs> it's there is n- there's no closure at the moment. <laughs> oh, but even in the Buddhist context, if all, all formations are conditioned, so everything mm-hmm. has a prior condition to it that you know leads to some form of becoming. And so, where does I mean, free will seems like something extra that you're able to bring to that to uh-huh. s- steer things. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I remember when I when I when I first started doing long periods of intensive meditation <clears throat> and looking, we just look at the the how decisions come into my mind. Decisions would arise. Um, just looking at the intentions, but every decision that I could see, either being made in the present or decisions I made in the past, 
I could just as easily say, well, that decision happened because of this prior situation, this prior feeling, the set of conditions, uh, someone else's input, right? Something that I read, almost, it's like, well, I don't, free will starts to disappear. You think, well, it's my personal choice to, to do this, but then taking a very close look at the causes and conditions, and especially when we're acting more habitually, but even when we're not acting habitually, when we feel like we're totally free and spontaneous, then it still comes back to what prior conditions led to that. So then it really throws into the question whether there's any, well, who are making these decisions? Now certainly on the conventional level, the Buddha teaches that there is free will in order to make wholesome decisions so that we you know, on the level of morality and sila, on the level of developing uh, meditation, interest in the Dhamma, our lifestyle, making decisions based on on the wholesome, choosing the wholesome over the unwholesome, is the essence of the whole practice from beginning to the end. But then, at some point, you have to come and look, well, who is making these decisions, supposedly? And, and you, it's, it's like after all this practice, you realize there's been no one here making, doing the practice all this time. <laughs> it always feels like a joke. It's like, like, like I've, been, I've been working so hard at my practice for years, decades, decades. And then you get the point of, oh, well, there wasn't anybody there the whole time. It's like there is action, but there's no one who's taking the action. There are decisions. There are decisions. Decisions happen, but there's no person or sense of identity who is behind that making the decision. Uh, sorry, just a minute. Bruce. So when we you know, go up to the monastery and um, we do the morning chanting and the morning reflections, Part of that is applying the three characteristics of dukkha, nicca, anatta to the conduct. And so it, that, that, that reflection is always great for me, particularly when they start talking about the impermanent aspect of, uh, of rupa, of the of body, of, of perceptions, of vedana, of feeling, and formations, and consciousness, because um, it's so interesting that you know you 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 have a, a unpleasant or say you have a pleasant um, um, smell experience. Say you you walk by Pacific Cookie Company and <laughs> and you smell that kind of sweet smell and that smells great. But if you've just eaten a bunch of sweet stuff and you walk by that, I mean and that's so that's an unpleasant or that's a pleasant vedana. Right. It's pleasant. <clears throat> Then you walk by if you've just eaten something sweet, like a big ice cream cone or something, and you ju it might just turn mm -hmm. your stomach, might be very unpleasant. So you realize that this this whole pleasant and unpleasant is... It's not intrinsic inside the object. Exactly. It is projected from our own mind. Exactly. <clears throat> and so, yeah, so that takes a lot of the person, you know, the, the identification right. away from it, and it goes right 
down the line for all of the things that you were talking about. Right. So I, I think that's a powerful contemplation. You can turn your life upside down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But it's very freeing, it you know? Is. It's very freeing. To what degree are we, are we living as slaves to our pleasant and unpleasant demands, you know, demands to perpetuate the pleasant and, and run away from or avoid the unpleasant. Whether, I mean, sometimes we're conscious of it, but the ones that really control our lives are often the ones that we're not yet conscious of. Yeah. And we can't force ourselves to be conscious of it, but what we can do is, is always keep coming back to just develop a continuity of mindfulness, clear awareness in everything that we do, whether it's in meditation or action, and gradually our awareness becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, more continuous, and then the blind spots, you know, what was completely blind, suddenly it's like, oh, there's a moment of, of a bit of clarity there, and so, wow, I never noticed I did that. And then our friends or partner said, yeah, you, you've done that for 40 years. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You're just being aware of it now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it is, it's, you know, it's challenging, but it's, it's, it's very freeing. So we... It's, but it's it's destabilizing at the same time. You know, if we're basing our stability on a particular way of looking at life and identify, identifying with things as me, mine, right? This is who I am. You know, even other people. This is, you know, my mother, my father, my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband. I mean, we're we're basing a certain stability on these identifications. And when we start to question those, then things can feel a little up in the air. But it's okay. So language, especially English, really helps solidify that identification with I. The whole way the language is structured. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, the Buddha didn't... He did use conventional language. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he wasn't... <clears throat> He wasn't. He didn't come off as someone who's weird, you know. <laughs> so, but he would often refer to himself not as I, but he would refer to himself as the Tathagata, you know? the Tathagata, almost in the third person, is like the one who has thus come or is thus gone. It's a bit presumptuous if we do that, but you know, <laughs> it's like. The one who has thus come <laughs> perceives deliciousness of your dinner. <laughs> come on. So we can use conventional language, but then, you know, just to try to have little warning bells, just because I say I, or just because I say mine, doesn't mean I have to, you know, doesn't mean I have to identify with that or grasp at it as me and mine. But, you know, if I say I or mine, that's usually indicative of some identification and grasping. We realize we do it all day long.
Oh, uh, you had a question? So yes. We covered it. Okay. All right. Good. Anybody else? Uh-huh. Sometimes in Buddhist contexts, I've heard of, um, a reference to true self, um, mm-hmm. some some notion that you know pursuing the path of awakening can kind of um, kind of realize. I guess that might be the word kind of realize this true. I, 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 you know, there's like no self, and then there's this sort of realization of your some kind of potential that's called true self, and it seems like I don't right. understand the relationship between no self and true self. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for good reason. <laughs> I, when I was first learning about Buddhism, you know, my college professors would, would talk about self with a, a small s or self with a big s. And but there is no there's no big self in in you know Theravada Buddhism or the 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 original teachings there is no greater self that we are unifying with or uh, absorbed into or coming in communi- communion with there's simply things that we identify with that arise and pass away so um it tends to be influenced from other traditions right uh, more than coming from within Buddhism itself, or at least the origins of Buddhism. I mean, Tibetan Buddhism, I mean, isn't there the notion that it's the Alaya, basically uh, a background? And... Background consciousness, right. Yeah, for thousands of years there's been this debate and if the five kind of cease with no remainder, then it's kind of unsatisfying. Shouldn't there, you know, is there some form of undifferentiated consciousness which survives the cessation of the five khandhas? So when when a person becomes fully enlightened, what the Buddha termed an arhat, when they pass away, the five khandhas will cease without remainder, and so no rebirth happens. Does anything exist after that? The Buddha said, no, you can't. People would try to pin him down. You know, what happens after an enlightened person dies? <clears throat> Does does that person exist? No, it doesn't exist. Does that person not exist? So well, no, it doesn't not exist because there was no real person there to begin with. Does that person neither exist, neither exist nor not exist? Right, and they would continually try to pin him down, and, and the Buddha refused to be pinned down. So there are um, there are hints here and there, a little hints here and there in the suttas that the uh, that would, f- I mean, fuel one side of the debate that there is an, 
an uh, undying, undifferentiated consciousness. Um, and then there, on the other side, you can say there's a sense of, no, consciousness is simply the awareness and part of the five khandhas. Consciousness, all consciousness is within the five khandhas, and when the five khandhas cease, then, then that is cessation. Either way, identification with consciousness will have ceased already while that person is living. So, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if there's no, if one is completely free of all identification, even with the subtle levels of consciousness, then there's going to be no possibility of even the most subtle forms of dukkha or suffering. And it's one of those questions that you can never know until you're fully enlightened and die. And by that time, it doesn't matter because you're already <laughs> fully enlightened. You've already reached the peak of human potential. <laughs> so it's just something that, like Buddhist practitioners, we tend to like love to argue about, identify with our views and opinions. <laughs> Right, and you know, and the forest masters in Thailand are equally pragmatic. Like, if I would go to a Thai master, ask something about, is there undifferentiated consciousness after the death of an arhat? He would probably just groan and grunt, and go. Hey. <laughs> What do you ask questions like that for, you know? <laughs> Go wash this platoon. <laughs> yeah? And just, you know, ultimately bringing it back to, look, that kind of speculation, it's, just, it's actually a distraction. It's just a way that the mind looks for distraction from the practical work that is helpful and necessary right here and right now. So, especially the uh, Ajahn Chah would have a lot of fun with the highly educated Western disciples that would go to him and ask very different, complicated questions, you know, compared with most of his other local disciples. But, you know, in the end, it's just like, oh, don't make it so complicated, you know. You'll know when you get there and you're so far away from it right now, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's nine o'clock now, we should probably wrap it up. Just to let you know that any donations to Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.